I was in Connecticut when my first college girlfriend broke up with me. There is virtually no chance she is listening to this podcast, but I wish she was because of all the wise things my first college girlfriend said to me. Probably the wisest was, as I got in the car after she dumped me, for the long ride back to Philadelphia, she said, don't listen to the radio. Every song will be about you. Advice I did not take, of course. I listened to the radio and it was nothing but songs about my own personal sadness. The tragedy of our breakup. The hopelessness of my situation. That's just the way it is. You know, you buy a Volkswagen and you see Volkswagens on the road. You break up with somebody and every song on the radio is about you. I mean, there's a reason for that one. Right now, it's, it's weird because I'm experiencing some things that are common to our species. And so it's not surprising that I see them reflected in the culture and in the conversations of the people around me. But I had a particularly strong experience of this phenomenon uh, this week when I read a novel, an old novel that was very popular when I was a kid. It was called Ordinary People, written by Judith Guest. And it was later made into a really successful Hollywood film by Robert Redford, his first film, I might add. And it starred Mary Tyler Moore, Donald Sutherland. And it was a great movie about a family who had a tragedy. One of their kids died. And it just undoes their family. And it's the way in which the tragedy reveals maybe the limitations is a better word of the different people in the family. There's a heroic therapist in the middle of it. I mean, he's not heroic, but he's very cool. Somebody who, you know, the kind of therapist that I aspire to be, where Johnny knows spot with just the right question or just the right insight that unlocks something. It felt pretty realistic in this case. I don't know if it's a great novel. This is the thing. I've been recommending it to people, and then I started looking up reviews of the book from when it came out. And obviously, it's a huge bestseller. It's popular. I think it was one of the first novels in that era that sort of portrayed upper middle class people having real problems in a familiar way. I'm not, I'm not sure why it became such a phenomenon at the time, but a lot of people didn't think it was great. They thought the, the characters were not deep. They were sort of flat characters, but I didn't see it that way. I felt all sorts of depth in the characters, especially in the father and in the son. And then I realized, oh, Bart, you're projecting your own situation onto those characters. And so they seem deep and well-formed to you, maybe deeper and well-formed than they would to somebody else because you're identifying. Kind of isn't that the point of a novel? that you identify? Isn't that why I'm always encouraging people to read novels, especially these kind of very, I read only nonfiction, 
sciencey post-Christians who I read theology when I was a Christian and now I just read Sam Harris's books and science and things like that. I, I, you got to read novels. And one of the reasons you got to read novels is because novels are great at develop. I mean, you know what I mean? Because there's a lot of data from your nonfiction books that would suggest that reading fiction makes you a more sensitive and understanding person, makes you more empathetic. There's something about the way a book, a piece of fiction can vault you, even, even in a way a movie can't, can vault you inside the mind of another person and enable you to see the world through different eyes. But the danger, of course, is that you bring your mind in there with you and you project your mind onto the character, which is probably what I did. Anyway, I still am going to say Ordinary People was a lovely novel and an important novel for me. And maybe an explanation, not, not that there's been some great tragedy in my life, but I've been facing up to some of the limitations I have some of the places I can't go, and also some of the places that the people in my life that I love can't go on my behalf or for me or with me. And you start to realize like, oh, wow. You know, we are ordinary people like everybody else. There are limits on us. Anyway, why am I telling you about this? I don't know. It was a cold opening to a podcast. It was, I started out just talking about the breakup thing and here I am telling you that there's a reason I've been missing in action for a few weeks podcast wise. And it's because I've been in my head trying to figure out some stuff, trying to come to terms with some things about myself that I wish were different, but they're not going to change. Because they're not things like, just fuck up, work harder. They're just like, this is me. And I got some limitations. More and more aware of the fact that coming to grips with our mortality is not just about coming to grips that, with the fact that we have limited time, that we will die. It's coming to grips with the fact that we have limited capacity, that we can't remember everything we want to remember. We can't do all the different things that we want to do. We can't be good at certain things that it would be really important for us to be good at, but we can't. And we can't understand other people's perspectives to the degree that would be helpful to those other people and us too. All right. That's me reflecting on mortality, apologizing in a backhanded way for being a little bit late to deliver this next podcast and yet also drum roll the conversation i'm about to share with you is a really good one yeah it really is yeah kate cohen if you read the washington post which many people do kate cohen is a columnist for the washington post which is kind of a very cool thing to be but when i talked to her it was on the occasion of her she's just coming out with a book called we have little faith. Why I stopped pretending to believe, and maybe you should too. And when I read it, I thought it was an internal thing where she was like, she, like, like many of us, had been sort of 
convincing ourselves that we still believed in something that later we realized like, maybe I wasn't believing it for a lot longer than I thought I was. I thought it was a book about internal pretending. But Kate Cohen was actually writing about being open about what you don't believe. And she says, look, even though more and more people in our society don't believe in God, many of them are reluctant to say so out loud. And her book is kind of an argument that not only is it kind of emotionally cathartic to do so, but that it's rewarding and it's helpful and it moves things forward. And, and in many ways, it might even be crucial to the kind of the, the health of our society moving forward, that people be more honest about what they do and don't believe in a way that's warm. And I think when you meet Kate Cohen, you're gonna go like, wow, this is a really nice person. And some of you like these episodes and some of you hate these episodes where I clearly kind of fall for the person I'm talking to and think like, oh gosh, I wanna have dinner with them next week. I, I, wanna, I wanna be their friend. And Kate Cohen, I, I really did. I hung up and I thought, gosh, I really like that woman. She wrote me a really quick note afterwards saying that was a lot of fun and I was like, super thrilled. Like she liked the conversation and I like the conversation and I think you're going to like the conversation. So here it is. This is me and Kate Cohen talking about her book and her life and the whole notion of how we interact with people around faith on Humanize Me. Oh, wait, before we go there, one quick message. I got a couple of not nasty, very sweet, nice, humanizing emails from people who were frustrated with things I have said on recent episodes. And if you come back after the conversation with Kate, I'm going to address a couple of those things and just briefly. So if you, if you want to hear me try to wiggle my way out or apologize, whatever you want to call it, respond to some criticism. I'll see you on the other side. Now, here's me and Kate Cohen. And Kate, just so you know, just okay. so you know, like we'll have a conversation and then like afterwards I'll record an introduction in which I'll say all the like the stuff. So, like I don't welcome you onto right, the show. Gotcha. We're just talking. Right. And then oh, I've, I've heard, I've heard the uh, podcast. I really like it. Oh, we really that, are talking about so many of the same things. So. Well, yeah, no, no. I, yeah. It, it was funny. I, I, I read you, you and you have those books that you read and like, um, I don't know how to say this, like. The ideas all made sense. Like, like sometimes I, I read a book and I go, like, I could have written that book. <laughs> you, you're a good writer. And so I go, like, I, I could read that book and agree with it. <laughs> um, but I appreciate that. But yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of resonance there. There's also a couple places where I was like, oh, she, she thinks differently about this oh, than good. I do. And so, you know, that's, that's probably, that's probably the, the most, that's the most interesting stuff sometimes. But, uh, but you know what else is, like I gotta tell you, I'm just kind of fascinated because right now I'm doing a job that is kind of adjacent mm -hmm. to what I what I really would like to be doing. Like I'm a therapist right now, right? And so, like all my life, I've talked to people about their lives and their problems and tried to help them put things together. Both when I was in the faith and then when I was like the humanist chaplain at USC. But I always did that in the context of communities. Mm -hmm. 
I knew everybody and like we ate together and we did things together. And then like you'd pull somebody aside to talk about something and then you'd watch them in action. You'd like, no, no, you can't talk to somebody like that. Or it was like coaching basketball. Like you were coaching people in relationships, but then you could watch them play. And you're not getting that right now. Oh, therapy's awful. You know, people come in and tell you, <laughs> they come in and they tell you like, this is how it went and you don't get to see it. You're like, well, try this. And they go like, okay. So it's like trying to coach somebody in basketball, but you never get to watch right. them play. And also you don't know any of the people they're playing with. So they're like, the other kids won't share the ball with me. And you're like, you know, so, so it's not like my dream job is to like be a university chaplain that like actually has a salary or to be the pastor of one of those secular congregations that don't really exist. Um, mm -hmm. My other dream job, would be to be a columnist for the Washington Post. <laughs> it's pretty great, I have to say. And so, like, is this adjacent to what you want to be doing? Or, is, like, have you landed, like, oh, my gosh, I did it? Honestly, I was working on this book. I enjoy that sort of large project where your mind gets to go all over the place. And I had sold some short pieces over the years, but I really wasn't really focused on that. And it was really my agent who said, you know, really help me sell this book if you had a bigger platform. So I went for it with the post. And as it went on, um, and as I worked with people there, and I just really, I everybody I've worked with there has been tremendous. And they really let me write kind of whatever I'm interested in. Um, there were times when I was finishing the book and it did help, I think, to be a Washington Post columnist. And so I, you know, then I, I got my contract and then I was finishing the book and also working as a columnist. And I thought, you know, maybe I just want to be a columnist <laughs> because it's just, yeah, it's very satisfying. And my mind. Instant feedback. Yeah, the whole thing. instant feedback. And sometimes I had two books out before this current book. And I'm really a writer, kind of, as you said, which includes thinking, to my mind. And I had the experience with both books. The first one was about family in Italy that survived the Holocaust. And the second one was about getting married, where I would do publicity about it. Everyone approached me as if I was an expert on these two topics. And what I thought of myself as was a writer who was who found an interesting thing to write about. Like a journalist, if you will. Right. I mean, it wasn't like, I never thought of myself as an expert in either of those two realms. And I don't think of myself as an expert on, you know, secularism in America or atheism or anything like that. It is interesting then to be looked at or put in this position, or maybe I put myself in this position of kind of expertise, when really I just like to to write and to think about things and to try to crystallize the distinctions that I have come up with or the, the ideas that I've come up with. I mean, I think that's a challenge. Oh, and I really like to entertain people too. That's another thing it was very important to me. I just got to tell you, like when the title of the book is We Have Little Faith, why I stopped pretending to believe, and maybe you should too. <laughs> that sounds kind of experty. Like this is how yeah. I did it. And, yeah, and I'm no, here fair. to help you. Well, it's easy enough to be the expert on my own head and my own family life. Right, um, right. So, the more I read the book, the more I felt like, I mean, not that it's a parenting book, 
But mm. I mean, I, I did feel like it would not be unwelcome in the section of parenting memoirs. Like, hey, it seems that your outness as an atheist was really sparked by, in some ways, informed by becoming a parent. That's absolutely true. I was raised Reform Jewish, and I uh, never really believed in an actual God who was listening to prayers or doing anything current, or even who created the earth. But I never talked to anybody about that. You know, to me, he was a storybook character and a fascinating storybook character. But I really kept that opinion to myself and didn't feel like it was necessary to clarify the issue until I had children. And then it was really this overwhelming sense of being the, the portal to everything that they learned about the world, which when they're little, it's really like this amazing, intense feeling of responsibility and power. And I took that super seriously. And I did not want to lie to them or hedge about things or mislead them at all um, okay, about but, but anything. S- but stop, stop. <laughs> okay. Back, back way up. Okay. Because what you didn't want to do to your kids, like I grew up uh, in a reformed Jewish household. Like where was this household? Yeah. This was in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Okay. Small, small town. Uh, we lived in a town of about a thousand and you can picture it as being sort of very kindly Protestants, lots of um, I was going to say a synagogue on, any, on every corner, no, right? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> we were the only Jews in my elementary school. 12 miles south, my dad taught at Madison College, which is now JMU, uh, James Madison University. In Harrisonburg, That we did have a synagogue, and we yeah. sort of shared a rabbi with another synagogue. So it was a small community, but it was, you know, there was a community. And there was in a my- few other kids in my Sunday school class. In my former life, I used to speak on Christian college campuses mm-hmm. all over the place. And so I would often come to Harrisonburg to speak oh, at really? Eastern Mennonite oh, Eastern yes. Mennonite College. Yeah. Those and, are really, they're good people. Aren't they lovely? They're really, they're yeah. lovely, lovely people. It was a wonderful place to grow up. So the thing is, you're growing up mm-hmm. in this Jewish family. Mm-hmm. And you're saying like, hey, I never really believed mm-hmm. any of the magical stuff about this. But were you surrounded by people who did? I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> they didn't say. They didn't say. I assumed, they- I guess, that my parents didn't really. I- I'm not sure. I mean, now they will say that they don't. At the time, I'm not sure how much they had clarified those questions even to themselves. And we were a very talky family. And my dad was an English professor, Shakespeare professor. And, you know, we talked about books, we talked about plays, we talked about movies all the time. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't like it was a silent sort of situation. But we never discussed the question of this, you know, sort of God that we referred to in prayers every Friday. And, you know, we, uh, I had two sisters and the three of us were all bat mitzvah. And we never... Never discuss, never discussed this, but seems to me now a very sort of important question. Well, um, it's, it's so interesting, Kate, because, yeah. you know, at the beginning you said like, hey, I've listened to some episodes of this show. Yeah. Like, we have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. One of the things we don't have in yes. common right. is that 
when you grow up in an evangelical Christian family, mm-hmm. believing it is the essence of it. Right. You know if people believe, or at least you know if they're telling you they believe, you know that believing it is really important. Right. It sounds like you grew up with a little bit of a mystery, like, I don't know if they believe, and I don't know that believing it's important. Like, Well, have- this is a big difference. And between- it turns out it's not. I mean, I think Judaism really is different in that sense. I mean, it accommodate. first of all, it sort of accommodates doubt and even atheism much more readily than other faiths. And also, it's clearly not just a faith. You know, it's also a people. It's also an identification. It's a culture. It's a lot of other things. So I knew that they identified strongly And I think that's basically what we were doing. And also, you know, keeping a sense of identity and, you know, in the midst of a very, very lovely, but very Christian kind of uh, environment. So uh, it was a sort of a sense of self, too. Um, And, you know, my parents. So what you didn't, what you didn't grow up with. I'm sorry to interrupt, but like. No, that's okay. I'm fixed on this. Like, yeah, I'm sensing that what you didn't grow up with was. Mm -hmm a sense that it was a mortal sin not to believe in God. Oh, for sure. No, I did not grow up with that. And I will say we did the prayers, we did some holidays, we went to synagogue, some we were we were bat mitzvah, we went to Sunday school, all those things. But never did my parents, you know, outside of those contexts ever say anything about God or you know, try to keep us in line by talking about God or say that God was watching or, you know, there was no, no sense of God as a real figure, which leads me to, you know, again, to believe that they sort of thought of him as a fictional character. When I picked up your book, Mm -hmm. at first I thought it was a book that I could relate to on this level. Like I thought, why I stopped pretending to believe. Yeah. And I thought, oh yeah, like, I think I pretended to believe for like 20 years. But then I started reading your book and you were talking about like pretending to other people to believe. Yeah. But the kind of pretending that I did. Oh, that is different. Yeah. Was to myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I talked to lots of people who have experienced this, that being raised in an environment Mm -hmm. where everyone believes and where believing is a moral duty. If you don't believe you want to pretend that you do to yourself. You're like, I, I do. No, I, I, I think I do. Like, mm-hmm. I'm. You're trying to believe. You feel like your your moral value depends upon you believing. It's a different kind of pretending. Absolutely. That sounds so hard. Oh, it, it's that very so hard. hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard. It's so hard to the degree that I will have conversations now with my wife in which we're trying to figure out if we ever actually believed in God. Or we're just trying. Or we're, just, or we're trying so right. hard. And you go like, but surely you must know the answer to that question. There are certain mountaintop moments where in that moment, I managed to believe it because mm-hmm. something was happening that confirmed my belief to me. But on a day-to-day, if you said, hey, do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that there's a God in heaven who's going to make everything right and you're going to live eternally in, in, in utopia? I don't know that I would have passed a lie detector test on any of those things, but I definitely would have li- passed a lie detector test on 
Do you desperately want to believe those things? Right. Yeah. And you didn't grow up in that. You didn't grow up I feeling like it was immoral not to believe in God. No. My struggle was more with, you know, how I was perceived by other people. Other people, yeah. And how I related to other people. And I'm grateful that I never had the struggle within myself that you are talking about. Somebody recently asked me Pascal's wager or something like that. Like, maybe it's just smarter to just believe. And I'm like, that may be, but there's no way. Like, I couldn't do that any more than I could, you know, believe in Tinkerbell or something. I mean, I was never a choice and it was never something I thought I needed to do. So I am grateful for that. I will say that a lot of the things that I talk about in my book, after the point at which I just, you know, started to raise my children as atheists, and I had to sort of work my way through all the things that religion would have given me if I had let it, and I still wanted, you know, like ways to talk about and think about death and ways to talk about morality. I had avoided thinking about a lot of those things. So that it wasn't like I'd worked everything out and I was just waiting to announce myself. <laughs> there were things that I was sort of maybe doing my best not to think about, which I think is the sort of state of a lot of people, a lot of the people that I'm hoping to reach who would just prefer not to settle one way or another in their own minds about what Not to articulate a worldview. Not to articulate a worldview and also to pass on a worldview that they don't necessarily, they haven't necessarily signed on to just because they think that they're supposed to when they have kids. You know, they think there's that, that that's the only way they can give their kids certain things. And that, I mean, as you point out, was, you know, what I was determined absolutely not to do. You know, it's sort of happy enough to play along with the various rituals of Jewish life yeah. before. And even, you know, when they were little, we were still kind of participating some in the community. But, man, I was not going to tell them uh, that the cat went to heaven. I was not going to do that. Yeah. So it sounds like growing up, not believing didn't extract a high cost on you emotionally. That's right. And it sounds like when you had kids, you were like, hey, Right. I can't raise my kids the way I want to raise them unless I'm open about this stuff. I I will say, yeah, I did not feel that not believing extracted a price. But looking back, my parents are still alive. I can still have these conversations with them. But I would have loved and been able or thought that I could. And maybe I could have. You know, I give them credit. I'm sure I could have brought up something. It's just that We never did, but I would have loved to have the kinds of conversations with them at the time about, you know, what happens after you die or what, what life is about. Yeah. Yeah, Or morality. Well, how do we decide what's right and wrong? I would have loved to have those conversations with them then. Um, And I think, you know, we're a close family, but I think we could have gotten a lot out of that if I'd had that, but no, that's not a high cost. You know, that, well, you know, it is and it isn't. Like when yeah. you look at your kids, you're like, mm-hmm. it's a high enough cost that you weren't willing to pay it. That's true. That and is so true. I think there's real value in having those conversations in a family with children all the way up through. I got to tell you, as a therapist, mm-hmm. I meet people who are suffering 
from the lack of a worldview because those conversations were not had. And somebody dies and they have no framework to understand death or their career stalls or they hate what they're doing and they have no way to sort of talk about meaning or or like why we work, that they have sailed along without a worldview and then they arrive in a forest where they could really use a worldview. Mm -hmm. They're not prepared. So I, I think there is a cost that gets extracted. Sexually, there's a cost. Like, oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I almost have that be my next book in a way. I mean, it's sort of like these things are, well, I'm not sex, although it can be for children, but I'm just saying these ideas, you know, the idea that we die, it's a scary idea. It's an upsetting idea. It's an unthinkable idea. And yeah, I could pretend that- It's the idea that launched a thousand religions. Is, absolutely. It is the core, it's the core issue for which uh, religion was invented. And I just feel like I can't necessarily give my children the comfort that's perhaps that's saying, okay, it's fine. You can die because you get another life after this. You know, you're, you're, you continue on, your soul continues or, you know, I can't do that, but I can help them, you know, sort of look at these big questions and, and prepare them, as you say, to sort of become adults facing big questions themselves. And I couldn't do that if I was you know, passing on something I didn't think was true. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I do think you're right. The death one's the biggie. Mm-hmm. But I go like, when a kid's 15, Yeah. one of the things that I found was that with my kids, that I had an internal thing that said, don't just go out there and have sex with anybody. <laughs> you know, like right. you're going to get hurt. Right. Sex is important. Sex is powerful. Sex it matters a lot to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Right. But I didn't have language at that point. I do now. Right. I had to work it out to explain to them what I believe about sex. Right. And how I thought they might have the best possible sexual lives. And the first step, of course, is figuring out what you believe, which is, it's not easy when you're sort of surrounded by all kinds of messages and, you know, insistent messages. That's the first step. I mean, we- And Kate, did that happen to you? Like, what I mean is like, obviously as an evangelical Christian. Right. Like, this is what we think about sex. This is when you can have it. This is when you can't have it. This is what's wrong, what's right. This is the way to do it. And most of my friends didn't subscribe to that. Mm Mm-hmm. In, in the sense of like, they're like, I'm not going to do that. But they're like, but I accept that that is the right thing to do. Ah. Sort of like your, your Emo Wilson bicycle quote. <laughs> what, what was <laughs> right. it that he said? You know, I, 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 I started uh, out. Uh, I stole a bike and then I uh, asked forgiveness after. Yeah. Right, right, right. He, oh, he said, right. Yeah, he said, first I started praying right. to God to give me a bike. But right. I realized he doesn't work that way. So then I just <laughs> stole one and asked him to forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so most of my friends were sort of like, I accept that what that God has a path for sexual righteousness. I'm not going to take that path, but I accept. I'll the path. ask for forgiveness. I'll, yeah. So they were also spared the need to come up with a what sexual morality, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Is that you? Like when you arrived at teenagerhood as a, as an atheist who yeah. wasn't out there, had you not? You, you didn't have to come up with like what do I think is right or wrong about sex because you're like, did the Jewish faith give you or your family give you like? I'm not going to do it, but I know what they think is right. 
you know, my, um, my parents were uh, pretty progressive. The rules that we had as kids were about, like, we could drink, but it had to be in the house. Like, it was about safety, you know, that kind of thing. Or um, uh, we had to wear, wear our seatbelts. And we had to, and, uh, you know, it was, there was a, there was a rule that we joke about now that we couldn't get married before we were 25. Now I think they should have said, you can't have a baby <laughs> you have 25, until you're that age. You know, there was an assumption that we would have sex and, you know, that we should be safe about it or whatever. Did we talk about the ethics of it? I don't think enough, but I totally credit them for not ever giving me a sense that there was something shameful, Im- shameful or Im- immoral uh, about it at all. I think where my ethics came from, you know, at which maybe where a lot of my thinking comes from, a lot of commentary comes from is, you know, I experience whatever the the sort of cultural norm is as being not quite right. You know, so if it's that sex is shameful or menstruation is gross or whatever, you know, whatever the things are that you're getting from the world at large, which I, you know, again, didn't come from my parents, I am grateful to say. Or even that I rejected too the idea that sex was sacred, you know, that it had to be, it had to be attached to love, attached to love, that it was like this romantic, momentous thing. It can be that. But I sort of rejected that it had to be that. I was sort of thought, well, it's okay if it's just something that feels good. You know, you've got to protect yourself and you've got to protect the other person and be aware that those moments are very vulnerable moments and they're, it's an easy to hurt other people in those moments in one way or another. Yeah. So I'm very, you know, but a, a lot of those thoughts that I, that I have and the sort of conclusions I came to just came from sort of investigating my own response to the stuff that surrounds us. Then I raised two boys and a girl and you definitely have to, yeah. you know, you have to come up with, as you say, your worldview and, and, and talk through it with kids. And it's funny, um, this may be a weird way back to your book, Yeah, <laughs> but I, I was thinking that in a sense, sex, teaching my son in particular about sex, mm-hmm. one of the things that I felt the need to teach him when he was out there in the world is he would say something to me to the akin to the fact of like, Hey, you have this weird misconception that all these women think that sex is sacred. And that mm-hmm. like, if I, if I have sex with them, they're going to think we're in love. And it's going to mean, there's a lot of these women out here who just want to. Right. You know, pleasurable. And what I ended up saying is like, yeah, but you need yeah. to understand that just cause somebody says that it doesn't mean anything to them or that they're cool or that they don't mind if you're with three different girls mm-hmm. at the same time doesn't mean that they can really handle that. And so what I ended up teaching was like, you actually have to take responsibility, not to take people just at their word, but to look in their eyes and look at the life, like what kind of supports do they have around them? Like, and to see how vulnerable they are, because this is undeniably a powerful thing Now, the reason I say that brings me back to the book is because one of the things that you sort of talk about, especially in the first half of the book, is this, it shouldn't be radical, but you're like, it's a really radical thing to just say like, 
if you're if you don't believe in God, just say that. You, know, <laughs> you mean like, to your kids or to the world at large? To any yeah, to the world. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of like, look, if somebody around you is a believer, you don't need to be like so oh, precious yeah. around them. You know, why does religion get this privilege where I can't say that I'm not with it? And you say that, right? Yeah. You believe that. Absolutely. I, I think it's it is really funny. I I mean, it's the internet age, you know, people know that other people don't believe, right? It shouldn't be a thing that you have to protect believers from. It should be just something that you can say about yourself. And yet there is a sense of like that other people are like somehow too fragile. Their beliefs are too fragile. Yeah, and that you have to tiptoe around them. I mean, I liken it as I think at some point in the book to the fact that what my kids know Santa Claus isn't real. You know, even when they were little, they knew that. And then, but, 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 but they had the sense. Ah, and I'm sure I told them, you know, don't tell, don't tell Max, don't tell whatever, don't, you know, don't It'll blow it for other them. people. Upset You'll upset them. them. And their family. And their families. But of course, the difference is eventually Max finds out there is no Santa Claus. And that is not necessarily true of, believers. And so you did. So do, do I have to tiptoe around for my whole life? I or, even, just, or even when your kid comes to you and says, mommy, is there Santa Claus? You don't say to them, well, some people believe that there isn't, <laughs> right. is, and other people believe that there right. isn't. What do you right. think? Right. Like, and right. you can make that choice on your own. You don't teach yeah. that to a kid. If, you're like, no, I don't. Are, are there monsters in the closet? Well, right. you know, some people believe in monsters. Some people don't. Yeah. You know? And you, I think you, this is a big a sort of thing that distinguishes me from other people who've written about raising children in secular families. I really did not think that I needed to do the both and or the it could be or this is just what I believe or anything like that. Because I don't have any sense that the God that they're asking about is any more real than any other thing that we could make up. You know, so it just seemed to me completely and this is where I have to challenge you. Okay. Okay. Go, go, go. And this is where, because what I taught my son about mm -hmm. sex was, listen, even if the people say they can handle it, you have to judge where they're at right. and if they can handle it. One of the things that, that happens to people who are raised not only to believe in God, but to believe that not believing in God is a morally horrible thing. Mm-hmm is that if you just say to them, I don't believe in God, they fear you. It scares them. Like, is this catching? Like, could you convince me not to believe in God? You seem mm. like a nice person, a rational person. Right. And they get scared. It also causes them to judge you. No, oh, that's true. And to think that, you, not, not just to judge you as bad, but to judge you as doomed. It changes the whole relationship. And so sometimes what happens is, is you, you see a person that holds a belief. The reason I am careful about people, like I, I'm afraid that of mm -hmm. like what they'll think of me. I'm afraid of the fear that it will send through them, of the terror that they will feel, of the unsafeness that they will suddenly feel, that I might be denying them a friendship that would be valuable for them. See, you're coming from a, a place where you can really empathize with that because that 
That's right. I'm, yeah, was what was going through your head. I am coming from a place where the times that I really went out on a limb, and and I will say that you know it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't have to go around talking about this all the time. I don't have to respond to, it's a nice day, isn't it? With like, God had nothing to do with it. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> right. and you I don't still want to be an appropriate your... human being. I still am an appropriate human being. But the times when it has come up and I have been brave enough to, to sort of say what I really think, what I've experienced is, is people saying, Sometimes saying either, oh, really, that's, that's, that's fascinating, or saying, I don't really believe either. You know, so I've experienced the other thing where there's this, this joy of hearing that someone else is in the same camp that you are or sort of has that same worldview and is also keeping it to themselves. And I feel like, you know, if you don't take that risk, then you are not going to find out and find that fellowship and that community. Now, it depends on the person. It depends right? on the person. It and depends that's on what the person. I, and we're talking about some pretty advanced interpersonal skills here. And just to go back also to what you were telling your 15 year old about sex, I mean, you know, yes, he needs to use his own judgment and not just what a person says to him about whether they feel ready to have sex. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to, or he shouldn't be sort of overriding what they say or not listening to what they're saying. You know, so there's a balance. It depends on the person and it depends on your, your ability to, to read. That's the essence of the moral teaching, right? Yes, Is that you right. got to pay attention to who's in front of you. When I was reading your book, I was like, if you knew my aunt, Rose... You would know that, like, I wasn't worried that she would judge me. And she did, I, I did tell her, she did find out. And I did tell her because I, yeah. you know, I'm, I was a public figure. Right? There were <laughs> newspaper articles about it. That is one way to do it, you know. When you deconvert. <laughs> this book will be a. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, right. Nobody's right. going to know. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, this is my, our little secret. Right. Just you, me, between you, me, and the New York Times. <laughs> when she found out, I wasn't worried that she would be hateful or mean to right. me. I was worried that this would shake her that she would be like bart's doomed yeah and that that would create such a sense of sadness in her and brokenness in her and so that's the kind of thing that i think sometimes we people people who grow up like with your family when you finally came out yeah i mean the one thing you knew was like nobody really cares that much this isn't a deal breaker right. for anybody right but but my family Yes. No, it's to it's a it's a different situation. Absolutely. But I will say that my reticence wasn't just self-protection. I think it also had to do with a certain amount of not wanting to upset people. Yeah. You know, not wanting to But you not, got over that. Huh? But you got over that. I did get over it <laughs> in the sense that I did get over it in the sense that I ended up feeling like the risk was worth it because so many people are hiding their true beliefs. It's I so true. sincerely believe that. Oh gosh, so yes. many people think that they're the only atheist in the room uh, while talking to somebody else who thinks they're the only atheist in the room. You know, I really feel like 
it's worth it to be clear because on the off chance that, or maybe the good chance that you're going to find a common language. In this sense, being raised Jewish probably gives me an edge in the sense that for so many people, I'm already going to hell. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone who thinks, you know, who's going to worry about my soul, you know, probably already does. Unless you get to the really evangelicals who think that the Jews are, they get a special dispensation. You guys are the best. That's true. So there's kind of like, you know, I'm kind of, you know, used to that, that attitude already. And even as a Reformed Jew thinks I'm a horrible sinner, right? you know, so it's sort of like, I've already lost in that sense, you know? (laughs) So when I come back to the core of what I feel like your project was in this book, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if I'm right. The first part of it is, this is why I'm open, Mm -hmm. it feels like. And this is how I'm open. And this is, this is what it means to me to be like talking to one of my kids' friends' parents Mm -hmm. and they say something and this is how I respond. Right. And, you know, that's where you're sort of like, there's a lot of wonderful things that come out of these conversations. And the second half of the book seems to me to be sort of like, almost like your version of building a secular life. Right. I think that's right. Tell me about raising these kids' ears, raising them and being open with them. Because it doesn't seem like you were just saying like, I don't believe and your dad doesn't believe. What you ended up teaching them was, it isn't true. The way I like to say it is, it's made up. It's invented. I really prefer to frame it like that as a human invention, a human creation, partly because I have a lot of admiration for it. I mean, as we were saying before, you're here you are faced with the fact of and consciousness of your own mortality. What the heck are you going to do with that information thousands of years ago? You know, we came up with incredible, fanciful, fictional frameworks that explain and attempt to erase our deaths, you know, to ourselves. Uh, It's amazing. It's beautiful. And beautiful things come out of it. So that's why I like to say, you know, that God is made up, that God is invented, rather than that he doesn't exist. Because, you know, I I think on some level, yeah, I believe that Hamlet exists on some realm. And Hamlet does a lot for me. I get a lot out of that. So I don't want to, you know, anyway. So that's how I talk to them. About no, that's it. that's an interesting, interesting thing. Like Hamlet exists. Sure, yeah. He's invented, and he exists, and people know what he's like. Right. They have a sense of his personality. They know mm-hmm. what his struggles are. He's inspired some people, and so you go, yeah. Hamlet exists. Right. But like he was made up. He was made up. And what you're saying is, you know, God or any number of gods, they exist. They, yep. And they've inspired people and they've caused people to do things and caused people to do terrible things, but they're invented. And that's, that, that was the essence of your teaching to your Mm -hmm. kids. Like this is invented. How'd that work out? (laughs) It worked out great. (laughs) (laughs) It worked out great. And partly because, you know, people have asked me, well, what's the advantage in raising them as atheists? And I will say, it's really, it's not so much that that was the advantage because I think, you know, real believers get a lot out of what they believe and having a sometimes a, an active faith life and sometimes. with their children. And they, and okay. a huge well, you cost. tell me, I don't there's know. There's a huge yeah. cost involved. It can too. be. But to me, 
It was more like choosing to be honest rather than choosing to raise them as atheists. Like atheism was just like, I I wasn't, I didn't have like options. I am an atheist. So the choice was about being honest with my children. And that was just this incredible sort of decision that I made. And I I mean, my husband also. So I kind of leave him out so that I don't misquote him throughout the book or whatever, but it wasn't just me. That decision to be honest with the kids. And we were honest about, as you say, sex, which has a lot in common with it, you know, in terms of the things that people don't want to talk about or, you know, whatever. We're honest about money. We're honest about, you know, that I can't even believe that people pretend to their children that they didn't drink when they were in high school or they never did drugs or they aren't currently smoking pot or whatever. It's like, what are you doing? You know, why are you leaving out information that your kids can really use and you can use to talk to your children about morality, about ethics, about these things? I just don't, I really don't understand it. So Kate, what's interesting is, is that it sounds to me like the real value here was, I want my kids to actually know me. Yes, right. And if I act as though I think that it's equally legitimate to believe these things and not believe these things. I'm not telling the truth. That's right. And if they think that I would respect them intellectually equally, if they subscribe to these beliefs, if they go to college and get caught up in some Christian young life group and they, (laughs) you know, and they come back home and they go, God is real and Jesus is our savior. And you go like, you go like, you'd still love them, but you go like, but they would know that you don't respect that intellectually, that you don't think that's an equal choice. That's true. Yeah. I would say I would have a lot of trouble with that, but I wouldn't stew in my room having trouble with that. We'd talk about it, you know, and um, yeah, I'd be really curious. (laughs) Trust me, you'd have trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I'm I'm just saying I would have trouble, but I wouldn't keep it to myself. No, Because we've established this, you know, we've established this relationship early on in which, you know, we really do talk about. Yeah everything. Not that there aren't things they keep from me and not that there aren't private things that I, I don't talk to them about, but. And that's the the interesting thing about your family. That's the interesting thing about your family. Like it's just crystallizing for me right now. So forgive me, but to be a Cohen, (laughs) like there are things that we Cohen's believe. My kids are Cohen Greenberg's. So I just want to say, okay. So, but, but our family, yeah. To be in our family. Yeah. These are our family. These are some family. Yeah. Like we believe some things to be true. Like we believe the earth is round. It's not flat. We believe that. <laughs> like they would say like, Hey, you know, you know, we, I, I found this out. And you're like, yeah, that's true. You would, you would, you would, you go like, yeah, I think that's the truth. I mean, we are avid sort of consumers of literature and politics and all those things. So we'll talk about all that stuff. But yes, they're very evidence-based. We believe in, you know, progressive politics and... Shocking. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) So, yeah. uh, It's not like you have to believe these things to be in the family. You know, you're not going to get cast out or something like that. But I think we all kind of take a similar critical view of everything that comes in. But when you're little, like you go like, yeah, we wouldn't throw them out if they believe something different. (laughs) But when they're little, what you're teaching them is not this is one, one possibility. You're like... This is the truth. 
You teach them things as truth. It is right. true that if you walk into traffic, it is right. dangerous. Yes. It is true yes. that there are no monsters in the closet. Right. And you're like, it is true that men and women are equal. It is true, you know, those kinds of things too, moral things too. You know, you don't mess around with that stuff. Yeah, well, maybe I believe it's fine for men to marry other men, but other people think it's a terrible sin. You'll have to decide for yourself. You know, no, of course not. You would never do that. I would never do that. In a sense, what you're teaching them is this is our worldview. Like, this yeah. is what we see sure. as true. And it's not demonstrably true. Like, you know, men and women being equal, like, that's invented too. And you subscribe to that invention. It's invented in what sense? It's invented in the sense of, like, you can't prove that they're equal? Yes, and they are not equally able to do all the same things. I suppose when I say men and women are equal, I mean in terms of their Value, rights, which is in subjective. In terms of their value. And which is subjective. Uh, value, I, yes. Some people value yeah, men more than women. Some people don't value men too. more than women. Some and of course, people you can't like, prove that there is not, no monster who's in there, you know, under their bed. That's objective. There is no monster in the closet. There might be. Maybe it's invisible. If you want to carry it that far. I, what what <laughs> I mean, I'm saying is, is, like, and I'm not criticizing. Yeah. I'm not criticizing yeah. this at all. I'm not challenging this at all. All I'm saying is, is like, right. your thing is like, look, if there's something we take as to be a self-evident truth right. or to be an evidence-based truth, which are two different things, but like they're- Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And you go like, we're going to tell our kids not, this is- one way of doing it, like you can make right. a choice on this. We're going like, no, nah, this is the truth. They can reject that truth as a as, as elders. Absolutely, right. And you won't cut them off, right. but you're going to start them with like, this is your starter set of truth. Like, I'm going to yeah, teach you. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I like yeah. that. And it's ours. Like mm -hmm. this is like like why would I teach you anything other than what I believe to be true? Right. What's radical about that? But I think that there's something in the kind of the liberal atmosphere right now that doesn't think you're allowed to tell kids that your truth is the truth mm -hmm. that says, no, you have to tell them that like everybody thinks differently and we need to respect all those different choices. Mm -hmm. And so there's something very refreshing to me about your saying like, Hey, obviously I'm going to, these are my kids. The starter set I'm going to give them are my truths. Right. And if we're not teaching them what's wrong, where are they getting that? I guess, you know, that really is our job, sort of what's right and what's wrong. And if they want to have a discussion about that, I really welcome that. I mean, that that's interesting. That's how you figure yeah. things out yourself. That's how you think to yourself, okay, the whole question of gender or, you know, any of these things, you know, we have conversations about these things, trying to work, work things out. It's not a Ten Commandments situation and then you, you go on. It's really like a constant, a constant dialogue. But you can't really have a meaningful conversation about what's right and what's wrong unless it sits on top of a conversation about what's true. Like things are right and wrong because of if mm -hmm. the world is this way, this is right. If the world is this other way, something else would be right. Right. If there was a God in heaven who would reward you with eternal utopia and it's going to make everything right in the end. Like it would be right to sacrifice everything in your present day life to serve that God. Mm -hmm. If that's not true, that's a really foolish decision. So like what's right and wrong 
sits on the truth. And so you got to teach your kid your truth if you're going to teach them what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And you can't teach them that like the truth is up for grabs, but what's right and wrong is clear. The only people I know that have to do that are people that are in interfaith marriages. And those are very difficult. Those are very difficult. That's interesting. Because they're not allowed to teach the kid what's true. They're only allowed to teach the kid what's right. They can agree on what's right sometimes, but they can't agree on why it's right. That's interesting. Yeah. I'll have to think about that. I think it would be difficult to be married to somebody who, who's fundamental, you know, depends on how interfaith you mean, but a believer and a non-believer, I think that would be very difficult. Oh, it's, Because really, what are you telling your children? It's excruciating. And it's excruciating around children. And yeah. it's especially excruciating when they started out both believers and then one of them drops out. Right. Also, sometimes, you know, you didn't have this militant atheist state. Like, I don't need to walk up to somebody when they say it's a beautiful day and go like, that's right. And God had nothing to do with it because there is no God. <laughs> right. But like when you're a freshly deconverted Christian, you're so like. Annoying. You're, <laughs> you're so, you, do, you feel like you have to tell everybody that there is no God. Yeah. Because you've had the wool pulled over your eyes for so long and you're pissed. So who's your audience? Like, who's your sweet spot? Who are you writing to? I like to say that I am really trying to reach that squishy middle. I am not trying to convince believers not to believe. And I love fellowship with my fellow atheists, but I think they will take comfort from my book and find a lot of interesting things in my book and be entertained by my book. But the people that I'm really aiming at are the ones who don't really believe and are still pretending. And whether that pretense comes in the form of, you know, simply not articulating to themselves or their families, or if it comes in actually, you know, carrying on a faith tradition and passing on a faith tradition. There are a lot of people out there who really don't believe. And when I say don't believe, I want to be very clear. To me, an atheist is someone who does not believe there's a supernatural being in charge of the universe and who believes that God is is a human invention, right? So I have a lot of friends Well, fewer now because I've converted so many of them. (laughs) But I have a lot of friends who will say, well, they believe in this sort of oneness of human experience. They believe in God as kind of a a life force. Energy. You know, an energy. uh, Yes. The mystery of all the things we don't know. That's God. And I really reject that formulation because there's people out there today in America with increasing political power who believe that God is an actual being whose laws should pertain to the rest of us, who is judging, you know, what women are wearing and how people have sex and et cetera. As that force is so strong, the force that believes in God as an actual, you know, deity, I don't think we can mess around with calling the life force or anything like that. I don't think we shouldn't be calling that God. We'll yeah, call it I mean, call it something else. No, I mean uh, because we're I, just confusing the issue, and we're falling into this sort of 
trap that Daniel Dennett lays out too, of sort of like, we believe so strongly we're supposed to believe in God that we will we'll find something we believe in and slap the label on it, you know, so that, so that we can say we believe in God. Anyway, so I have so many friends who are in that camp. And those are the people that I'm really trying to get to see that they can shake it off. They can still have a rich life uh, full of meaning. They can still figure out right from wrong. They can still face questions of death. They can still enjoy holidays. They can do all kinds of things. But, and in fact, they can do it more easily. They can do it more easily. I believe that. I believe that if you get rid of the things you think you're supposed to believe that you don't really believe and you start from scratch, it's just, you know, it's so much simpler. (laughs) The path is clear. At that point, the path is clear for you to to make your own meaning in life. You know the questions that you need to answer. Mm -hmm. You know, and and again, like you have a child standing in front of you, and you will quickly know the questions you need to answer. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Well, it is helpful (laughs) to go through this process with children, but I think that anybody anybody can do it. It's just you have to kind of imagine that inquisitive, you know, four year old. Okay, so so now tell me about your holiday because. I, I, you know, I, I got all these secular people like we celebrate Darwin Day, and I like I get uh, yeah. I get that, and that that can be actually a beautiful celebration or the solstice. Your holiday is what International Pizza Day. This is yeah. Tell me about this. <laughs> what is this? This <laughs> this holiday. It actually is International Pizza Day. You can look it up. It's you know it's on the calendar. It came from. Another moment of me reading on the couch with my kids. It was a lot, a lot of moments come from, from that because we did that a lot. A book that we read uh, called Pizza for the Queen. It was about the invention of pizza margarita by Nancy Costaldo. It's a lovely children's book. And it said, if you want to celebrate, you can do that on February 9th. It's International Pizza Day. And it happened to be early February. And I was looking for stuff to do with small kids, which is what you do when you have small kids. Like, okay, what what, what do I do next? Because I'm bored out of my skull. <laughs> so we start, we just had, it was just a family thing. We made our own pizza and everybody picked their toppings. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And it's a wonderful holiday. It has all the features of holidays that I love. You know, it's about food. It's about family. It's sort of silly, but it's also very serious. Right. There's a sacred text. There's a sacred text. What, what is um, the sa- the sacred text? Is that children's book, right? We always have the children's book there if people want to read it. But no, I do a kind of a reading that I wrote, which is kind of a little bit modeled on the Hanukkah story. And okay. Which is an actual thing that happened, which is that I was making the dough for the pizza, which over the years, now that we have like 60 people come for International Pizza Day, it's a lot of work. And, and I was making the dough and I was running out of flour and I sent my husband to get flour and he came back and he'd forgotten the flour. So, but somehow, miraculously. Lo and behold. Lo and behold, I had enough flour to finish uh, the task. And so that is the reading that I do every year. And it sounds silly, but there is a genuine sense of community and fellowship and gratitude for these very simple, you know, ingredients of, you know, flour and water and... Well, I mean, what what is Thanksgiving except a day it was invented where people are like, let's celebrate exactly. this thing yeah, and the harvest and 
it grew into something, right? It grew and into there, something. Yeah. And I will say that songs you about know, today, it. International Pizza Day is my family's, you know, big holiday. People come home from college, they're like, oh, yeah. you got you oh, know, yeah. you're they not bring supposed their to friends. miss it. It's like yeah. I don't have the, I don't have enough room for all these people. But there's one problem with International Pizza Day, which I talk about and I and I think it's an interesting issue that I think probably you've dealt with too, which is, you know, you make something like that up and we invite as many people as can make pizzas for and but it's still not what everybody is doing. It's not what your neighbors are doing. It's not what the country is doing. It's not what, you know, you don't have that sense of kind of worldwide or countrywide or whatever, you know, that extended yet, yet, community beyond yet, your home. And yet, yet, you don't yes, have it yet. That's true. That's true. But it's a lot of work to say, I'm going to start this holiday that everybody, <laughs> but, but the, I, I'm serious. Like they got a 2000 year head start on you or in the case of Judaism longer than that. <laughs> uh, but the truth of the matter is yeah. that when you were celebrating Jewish holidays in the deep South, everybody wasn't celebrating those holidays, but no, there were but people all around the world people, that were. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a great feeling. And I don't have that with International Pizza Day. So I'm really, no, it's just in my chapter on holidays. I'm really trying to tease out what makes a great holiday. And this question of community and sort of feeling like you are in concert with people yeah. that you don't even know. That is something that secular communities and atheists around the world, probably, you know, sort of trying to figure out how to do now, you know, because you can have your little home holidays, your made up holidays, and they're fantastic, and they could get pretty serious. But there's still, there's still something about being in tune with the it's rest true. of the world. It's true. But yeah. you know, I, I think about like, lots of people in the Silicon Valley were putting together little computers, and yeah. most of them didn't last, but Hewlett Packard's did, and, and Apple did. And then they became ubiquitous. And I sort of go like, maybe a lot of families have to come up with a lot of holidays. Oh, interesting. And one of them gets sticky and a kid comes to your house and they do it. And they go like, you know what? Let's do that at our house next year. And it becomes a thing. Like these religions that we, they look like they've always been there. Right. But they haven't. You know, I'm a big fan of the English Football League. I follow Leeds United. Like, and it seems like that club has a storied history. And, you know, soccer means something in England. It's part of the culture. And like, but it wasn't 200 years ago. Like, it's all new. It takes generations for these things to take hold. And so, in some sense, I think even if International Pizza Day doesn't make it, mm -hmm. you're one of the crabs crawling across the beach. But like, some of them are going to make it. Somebody's going to make it there. Somebody's going to figure out this community thing. Somebody's going to figure out how to have, like the Sunday Assembly's not going to make it. Somebody's going to figure out the holidays. and somebody, Because ultimately, more and more people are going to read your book or not read your book. But either way, <laughs> they're going to come out and say, like, I don't believe any of this supernatural right. stuff. Yeah. And they're going to need holidays. Yeah. And they're going to need inspirational texts. And they're going to need songs. If I have faith mm -hmm. in anything, it's my faith is that if humanity lives long enough to do it, people will work out an emotionally resonant, meaningful religion 
that has nothing to do with supernaturalism at all, that simply has to do with cherishing the reality of life. I believe that. And I think your book's actually going to be part of it, going to be helpful to it. Well, I hope you're right. And I think International Pizza Day is like, I don't (laughs) know if it's, I don't know if it's going to make it, but I go like, you know what? Or maybe what will happen is one of those college kids will start something completely different, Mm -hmm. but they'll remember that when they were at your house, the way you sat people worked a certain way, or it was really cool when you did it this way and they'll incorporate that and no one will ever know it had anything to do with International Pizza Day. That's so funny because, yeah. That reminds me of the chapter that I have on on death, what I say about the afterlife, which is basically what I think is that something about my life is going to reverberate in some way. And yes, I will. I personally will be forgotten. Yeah. But my life, my choices, they reverberate. And if I'm looking for life purpose, making those reverberations positive is is a pretty good one. Before we go. Yeah. Will you tell that story about your dad and Hamlet, your dad teaching Hamlet? Oh. <laughs> I touched yeah. him so much. Really? Yeah. You mean, so when he, uh, it's a Shakespeare professor, and he would, um, when they began their Hamlet unit, he would tell everyone in the classroom to stand up and that anyone who didn't know their parents' names should sit down. And nobody sat down. They knew their parents' names. And then anyone who didn't know all four grandparents' names should sit down. And then people started to, you know, uh, maybe a few people. And then anyone who didn't know all eight great-grandparents' names should sit down. And said that nobody ever stayed standing past, like, great-great-grandparents. Nobody knew. Right. And his point was about how long you're remembered, which is a big issue in Hamlet. And Hamlet's, you know, the ghost. Tell my story. Tell my, remember me, remember me, you know, and uh, Hamlet tries. (laughs) But sort of the question of legacy and afterlife was sort of is foremost in that play, I think. And, you know, my dad was pointing out that you won't be remembered. Oh, just I just I love Which that is moment. a heavy thing for him to lay on his what, <laughs> what a shoes, beautiful but good for thing him. to say to a bunch of young people at the yeah. beginning of their lives. Yeah. Like, you yeah. will be forgotten. You will be forgotten. Uh well, I mean, Shakespeare's incredible. My dad was a fantastic teacher. So uh yeah, I'm sure that was just one of many ways in which he blew their minds. <laughs> to just to live your life. Like, yeah. To to yeah. give them such an illustration so they could live their life in that truth. Yeah. Ah. I think the reason I asked you about your audience is because I suspected that you were not aiming at the militant atheist crowd. Even the second half of your book, like has a lot of really good, like how to live your life as a secular Mm -hmm. person stuff. Right. But I go like, you know, I sense like, yeah, you're not trying to like, you know, sort of go like, this is the atheist way. You also weren't aiming like, I'm going to attack I'm going to show these Christians or these, or these these believers why their thing doesn't make any sense. It's not another Richard Dawkins book or religion is the problem with religion. Mm-mm. But rather you're sort of saying like, hey, there's a cost that you're paying by not living honestly. Right. It's, it's really, really a, about it's a living call to honestly. honesty. Yeah. It's a really call to honesty. Yep. And uh, 
And and I feel like that ha- that will have personal rewards, and I think it'll have political rewards too. I, I think do too. It'll help the country. Yeah, I do too. It's funny because we live in an era where people are starting to talk about like, you know, with AI and chat GPT, like mm. the whole idea of like, how can you know if somebody's authentic? And like, there's this sense in which authenticity is becoming a real commodity or a value. A precious. precious it's a precious thing, thing to be authentic. And, and people respond to people who are authentic. And yet in our personal relationships, we still struggle so much with being vulnerable and struggle so much with being honest. And so like, I think like, not just that it's a call to honesty, but that it's a fun call to honesty with lots mm-hmm. of good stories about people having good relationships. Because I feel like what we want to do is we want to say like, come to honesty, not because it's right. Right. But because it's better. It's better. It feels good. It's pleasurable. It's all those things. It's yeah. how to make the most of your life. Yes. It's exactly. how to make the most of your life. Yeah. So, so thanks for the book. Oh. Thank, thanks for the time talking. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I really appreciate it. And I will start reading your columns on the reg. Great. I've never known somebody. I've never personally known. Although David (laughs) Brooks did go to my high school. Um, (laughs) So that was me and Kate Cohen and I liked it and I liked her and I hope you liked it. And I'm glad we did it. So there. Now, listen, here's an email I got. And I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's a super long email. Really friendly, really nice from uh, Colin. And Colin wrote to me recently. And Colin wrote and he said, I just want to say right off that I consider it pretty cool that I can reach out and give direct feedback on the podcast. Um, I've been supporting you for years through Patreon, and uh, I never miss an episode, even if I don't get to it the first or second day. (laughs) No need to apologize there. Okay, now the tough love, so to speak. About two weeks ago, I was listening to the Revisiting Antinatalism episode, and I was kind of blown away by the glibness with which you attempted to outmaneuver a certain stripe of environmentalists by throwing out there the idea that if you want to protect the environment, commit suicide, like that that would be the nth degree of that argument. Instead of catching the way what you said landed, you went on and even further to raise the volume, and in my opinion, the lapse of discretion, on your hyperbole by presenting the idea of murdering people. He was like, I understand that that was a rhetorical stunt, but he said, I couldn't listen to the rest of the discussion because I'm not overly squeamish, but I was really unhappy about the cheapness of the rhetorical move on one of the ultimate topics in terms of sensitivity. Like this is the topic about which you should be most sensitive. You know, and if you listen to things like, you know, people have trigger warnings and they will say, hey, before you even listen to this episode, there's gonna be talk of suicide. What he's sort of saying to me is like, I couldn't believe how insensitive you were, especially like you're a professional counselor. You should know better. And he said, I had to turn the podcast off. He said, to be clear, I'm going to return to the episode and listen to it. And, and I look forward to the next episode. But he said, I just have to tell you, I really hated that sequence. And he said, you know, maybe you've received a lot more communication on this issue. And the answer is, I haven't. 
And that doesn't mean Colin's wrong. What that means is, is that probably anyone else that was as offended as he was just turned off the podcast and said, I don't need to ever listen to that guy again. He's a tool. And they didn't write. And I'm so glad you did, Colin. And it's not as simple as me saying, yeah, I'm sorry for being so insensitive. I am sorry for being insensitive in that case. But the truth is, is that I probably talk about suicide in a more, I don't want to say casual way, but in a more normalized way than most people do on purpose. Because one of the difficulties I think we have in our society is that suicide is such a sensitive subject that people opt not to talk about it, that they avoid admitting the people in their lives that have been touched by it, except when they're really emotionally unloading, but they don't talk about it in casual everyday conversation. More importantly, they don't talk about the reasons why they don't commit suicide. They don't talk about like, oh, in that situation, you know, and I really thought about killing myself and then, but I wouldn't do that or I didn't do that for this reason or like, we don't talk a lot about how frequent and how rational it is to have suicidal ideation. And so a lot of people are having suicidal ideation. In fact, most people at some point have suicidal ideation, but they feel like that's something you should, you're never allowed to say out loud. Or sometimes people will see another person's life and another person's tragedy and go like, gosh, if that was me, I would kill myself. And, and people are like, oh, that's the most insensitive thing you can say. And I think sometimes you go like, if that was me, I would consider killing myself. But then hopefully there would be these reasons. I was talking to some, a, a, another counselor the other day and I was saying, I think you lose credibility with a client if you just go like, if you have a blanket argument, like suicide is always wrong, it's a coward's way out or what, whatever people say, where it's like suicide is, that, cause that's what I got from religion. It was like, suicide is just off the table. Like you're not allowed to do it. It is a sin, it is wrong. And the problem is, is that when you say under no circumstance, in no amount of pain, are you allowed to say enough? That you could be 90 years old and suffering from irremediable brain loss, you're in incredible pain and people are like, hey, just hang on there. Don't, don't kill yourself. If people don't admit that there are certain situations in which suicide might make sense for somebody, might be a legitimate choice, then I think you lose credibility to look at a teenager and say, and this isn't one of those cases. You shouldn't do this. Like, the, yes, there are situations where, where suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And then there are other times where it's a humane solution to an intractable problem of unbearable weight. But yours is the first. This is not a smart move. This is a move that if you don't do it, you'll be glad you didn't do it. And so in some cases, I think that the hypersensitivity around suicide actually causes us not to make better cases for why life is worth the trouble. Because a lot of times we don't admit that life is so filled with pain and so full of difficulty that in some cases it makes sense to weigh it out and go like, should I, shouldn't I? Does this make sense or not? And I think there's something really important about us 
learning to articulate how in the midst of really difficult situations, we do the math and we figure out that it's still worth it. It's still worth it because in most cases, and I think this is where Colin was probably wanting me to, in most cases, it isn't a good move and it isn't something that should be talked about lightly in any case. And so I'm not sorry for talking about it. I'm not even sorry for suggesting that sometimes it's an okay thing to do. It's a little bit like joking about it. And boy, Colin, it reminded me of an episode a long time ago when during COVID, I did a, an episode with a guy named um, Michael Dowd. And my son called me after he had listened to it. And he was furious at the way in which we had sort of glibly talked about the possibility of kind of the end of civilization or the end of the world, end of humanity, apocalypse and things like that. And he was like, I don't mind you talking about it, but he said, like to talk about it with that kind of like, woohoo, see, we were right. There is going to be a collapse of society. He said, it's just so awful and unhelpful. And I actually had him on the podcast. If you want to listen to somebody ream me out in a similar way or ream me out on a similar issue, he was a lot less, you know, gentle than you. But all of that to say, yeah, Colin, you're right. I appreciate you taking the time to let me know. And I will be more careful. And you're right. Talking naturally about suicide, openly about suicide is a good thing. But using it as a cheap rhetorical device to make an argument is kind of like the equivalent of like, I always say that when somebody brings Hitler into an argument, oh, well then, what about Hitler or this or that? Hitler would do this. That you, You've probably lost the argument when you start reaching for metaphors that, you know, or examples that are like, well, what would you do if it was Hitler? That's kind of a, a sign of desperation. And I wasn't desperate in that conversation with John. And so I shouldn't have reached for a desperate measure. Um, a cheap rhetorical trick, as you put it. I'll endeavor not to do it again. So thanks. Thanks for jumping in there. On a similar note, maybe less upsetting, but maybe not, now that I think about it. I also got a note from an old friend of the podcast saying, listen, I'm not going to post this publicly, but I got a bone to pick with you. Actually, with podcasters in general. He's like, chronic hunger has been a big issue for me throughout my life. When someone says something like, we figured out how to feed people, as an offhand comment, I get a little bit triggered. And what he was referring to was in one of my conversations with John, I was referring to kind of people that are, you know, worried about AI. And I said, listen, I remember when people were all worried about overpopulation and we were running out of food and then the green revolution came and all that stuff. And John's like, read your history, man. It was a doubling of world population since 1970. And it wasn't because we figured out how to feed everybody. It had to do with geopolitics and things like that. And then he ends up talking about Norman Borlaug, who, you know, was agronomist who came up with some techniques that ended up being like the green revolution that I was talking about. Borlaug said, hey, my work is not a long-term solution. Non-GMO and organic farming can't feed an expanding population. So we're going to have to do stuff that's really unhealthy and it's not going to be good. It, like, it bought us some time, but we need to figure out better ways of feeding ourselves. And even though we came up with all that food, billions of people still live with chronic hunger 
because of the politics or because of the economics of getting food around. And so like, don't kid yourself that because we have all this great technology and theoretically we can come up with enough food that we have figured out how to feed ourselves. We haven't figured out how to do a lot of things, not because we don't have the technology to do them, but because we don't have the political will to do them. And of course he's right. And of course he's right. And of course, if you've traveled in developing countries, you've seen human beings, you've driven past people who are hungry for reasons that have nothing to do with technology. And of course, you don't even have to go to developing countries. There are places in this country, there are lots of hungry people in this country. And so it's one thing to say we've I'm sure there's some wordsmithy way I could have said what I said without obfuscating one of the most painful subjects for some people in the world. And that is the fact that they're hungry or that people that they love are hungry or that they were hungry and, and, it, and it marked and shaped their life and shaped their psyche. I was flat wrong. We haven't figured out, you know, this was John Woolforth who, who wrote this. And, and I, I said to him, I said, hey, as you know, of course you're right. I said, as you know, I'm hopeful about each individual's ability to make things better for the people around them. But I'm not very optimistic about the collective ability of our species to ultimately overcome its most self-destructive tendencies. You know, like I, like I'm a pretty negative dude on that subject. It's funny because th this connects because he had said like, in spite of all of this, he said, you know, his PS to his letter where he, he kind of took me to school, took me to the Woodhouse, is he said, PS, otherwise life is good. And, uh, and I wrote back to him, I said, in the meantime, though, you're also right about life being good, or perhaps more precisely, well worth the trouble, which takes us back to the suicide thing. Yeah. And so it, it turns out that I'm getting sloppy, or maybe I've always been sloppy, and that I throw around big phrases and arguments, and especially on a podcast where I'm not going to get challenged. I'm not going to get challenged hard. Because like John's used to me. He's interested in what I'm saying, not how I'm saying it most of the time. Occasionally he's like, listen, you, you shouldn't talk that way. But you know, when, when you've been talking with the same person for many, many years, they're just used to you. And then somebody else shows up and they overhear your conversation. They're like, wow. That's a terrible way you said that. And that's what I feel like both Colin and John did for me. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate you. And I'll see y'all next time on Humanizing. This podcast is made possible by supporters of the show on Patreon. Get an exclusive extra episode every month for less than the cost of a cup of coffee at patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get a video newsletter from Bart and some extra goodies. Our patrons make this show happen. So please, if you enjoy it, consider joining us. That's patreon.com slash humanize me. Bart's website where you can contact him is bartcampolo.org. And this episode is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life.
可。